you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. All right, so our first reading is Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the second reading is Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ruthie. Well, good morning, church. Uh, don't know me, my name is Zach, and I uh, get to serve as one of the pastors here at City on a Hill, Brisbane. Uh, I'm just as pumped as Mike about the Matildas. Um, I've never really been into soccer and never really been into women's sports, I must admit. Um, but last night, everything was just fantastic. Um, Sonny even got, my six-year-old boy, even got excited about soccer. Um, so that's a win uh, in my books. Um, I think this afternoon I'm going to be showing him the replay because the, the penalty shootout was too late. Um, he had to go to bed, but he'll get to watch the replay. So that'll be fun for me again. Um, <laughs> Hey, we're going we're gonna to jump in this morning. Um, before we do, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are our good Father in heaven. You are our good God who loves us, who has gifted us all things that we need for our life, our breath, our godliness, our being made in your image. 
Uh, We're thankful this morning for your word that you have gifted to us and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help our hearts, our minds to hear it and understand it and be uh, transformed by it. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly uh, and that uh, this morning would be an edifying time for uh, our congregation gathered here this morning. Uh, We bless your name. Amen. Well, uh, before we dive into our particular uh, topic and text this morning, I wanted to take a moment to explain something which I think has huge ramifications for even how we come to a series like this Vine, Trellis and Crow series we're in, and even uh, to our particular topic this morning of denial and delight. If you've just joined us, as Mike mentioned, we've been in this topical series looking at how uh, Christ's people, we are to stay connected to uh, Jesus. John 15, sort of the overarching text for this whole sermon series, explicitly tells us that Christ is the true vine and we are the branches and that we are to remain in him or abide in him, uh, in Christ, our true vine. And these texts are effectively using this agricultural language to help us understand what Jesus means by our union with him. Now, this teaching of the Bible, uh, you could call it the doctrine of our union with Christ, uh, or maybe in more layman terms, our in Christness. Now, there are a few different ways uh, which people think this plays out in the Christian life. And I want to walk through four different options and show why I think that the last is the biblical option. Um, and fair warning, I've stolen the entire framework and concept of how to present this idea from a book called Deeper uh, by a pastor and author called Dane Ortland, who just makes this really um, accessible and easy to understand. So, uh, Here's a couple of ways that people think about our being in Christ, our union with Christ. Firstly, option A, uh, faith gets me in, but then I move me along. Um, So you can see it's sort of like two separate categories, Christ, then it's me. Uh, This option sort of equates our justification with the work of God or our, our being declared right with our Heavenly Father because of Jesus, which is true, but then says that our sanctification, our being made like Christ, is my work, my choices, my plans, my part to play. Second option, Uh, option B, the let go and let God approach, Uh, effectively arguing that I do nothing, I'm completely passive, I can sit on my easy chair all day long, God will do everything for me, I don't have to uh, take my life, my choices, my sin or anything seriously, Uh, this is sometimes probably referred to as cheap grace. Uh, Third option, option C, is the Christ plus me, Uh, so Christ does some and I do some, And this is possibly the most prevalent idea within uh, the church uh, when it comes to the concept of our union with Christ, that Christ rescues us and now we partner with the work of Christ uh, in order to grow together in our spirituality. However, all of these options have something in common. Um, And this might be a controversial statement, but uh, that's completely fine. Uh, I think all of these options have in common is a lack of biblical teaching. Option D, Christ in me and me in Christ. This is not me working apart from Christ. This is not me in apathetic passivity. This is not me even in partnership. But this is Christ doing all the work 
and me participating in that work. This is the work of our Heavenly Father placing us in Christ and it's our full dependence upon Christ. It's not partnership because partnership implies that if I don't bring my 50% to the partnership, then that other 50% has lost something, has, is unable to do something. Uh, you can consider business partners. If you've got two business partners and one doesn't bring enough to the table, the other business partner is having to do more work or is less of something, is losing something in that lack of um, partnering there. But it's participation. It's me having eyes and heart only for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Maybe a, a clearer way to explain this would be with this image of um, some different water activities. Maybe uh, this might help us think about it. We aren't the kayaker struggling to paddle upstream of our own spiritual growth. And we aren't the passive man in the sitting in the inner tube going nowhere, doing nothing. We're the skier. We are uh, holding on. The Holy Spirit is driving the boat, choosing the direction, setting the speed, and we are participating by clinging. Clinging to the finished work of Christ on our behalf and to all the riches of Christ's blessing poured out on us through his Holy Spirit. The life of growth in our Christian maturity is clinging on to all that Christ is, all that he does, all that he tells us about himself, all that he helps us to understand as we see who we are in God's word, what he's making us and has made us to be in himself. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, he says, go and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, go and cling on to that ski rope, knowing and trusting that it is God who is working in us both to will, so both to have the desire to do so, but also the, uh, gives us the work to do for his good pleasure. So I hope that helps this morning a little bit to help put our minds and our hearts a little bit more in alignment with what does the Bible teach about how we uh, come into Christ. We are placed in Christ by the Heavenly Father. It's not us doing enough good works that we now end up in Christ or God sees us and he goes, great, they've got step one, two uh, sorted. Now I'm just going to give them step three uh, and then they'll be able to go from three to ten uh, with that sort of great partnership that they're a part of. No, it's us recognising our complete lack of anything being able to be brought to the table and completely completely relying upon the finished work of Jesus and we rely on that finished work of Jesus by clinging to the truth and the beauty of that finished work of Jesus. And so this morning, that's how we're going to come to this topic of denial and delight. Now, we're going to uh, mostly be in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 uh, through to 26, and we're going to go across a couple of other um, bits and pieces of the New Testament as well, and I hope that we can see these three things that stand out very clearly from Matthew 16, 24. Firstly, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. These are simply just the words from Jesus, from Matthew 16, 24, as Ruthie uh, read for us a moment ago. Um, let's read verse 24 through to 26 again. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So how do we understand what Jesus is saying in the command, deny ourselves? I think the best way um, is to get clarity on this, sorry, the best way to get clarity on this is to look at the, the context of the passage that we're in this morning. The author Matthew has been ramping up the narrative throughout his gospel to the point uh, that happens just a few verses before our text where Jesus, walking with his disciples, asks them who people say he is. What's the, what's the word on the street about who I am? And they give some answers. They say, people say you're John the Baptist. People say you're one of the prophets, Elijah or Jeremiah. But then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And here is the Apostle Peter's time to shine. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And bingo, he's right. He's answered it well. And so this moment climaxes all that Matthew has been working up to, the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah or the Saviour, the King. He's the anointed one that all those Old Testament prophets have been speaking about all right throughout Old Testament history. And Peter's moment as the teacher's pet, as the star pupil is short-lived. Now let's read what happens next in Matthew 16, verse 21 to 23. This is just a few verses before our main text. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, you're expecting this military king to come and free you from the oppression of Rome. But that expectation is a thing of man, not a thing of God. And Jesus rebukes Peter and starts setting him straight by showing that the kingdom of God is actually upside down compared to the kingdom of man. He starts digging in deeper and showing that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That leadership is servanthood, that glory and crowns are the result of the cross, not the result of scratching and clawing and chasing after our own riches or pleasures or desires. The Apostle Paul, writing to uh, his son in the faith, Titus, gives him this most glorious ministry after detailing all the commands a mature Christian must strive for in Titus 2, 1 to 10. He then details how this is done, how a Christian who on their own could never achieve that list that he puts out in verses 1 through to 10, how they go about relishing in those commands. Turn with me to the book of Titus. This is how Paul encourages Titus to teach the people to go about uh, finding those commands beautiful and even achievable. He says from verse 11, 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in, the present, in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The reformer John Calvin, uh, who has a few really helpful chapters dedicated to this whole concept of denying yourself uh, in his most famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he comments, for as Christ, our Redeemer, once appeared, so in his final coming, he will show the fruit of the salvation brought forth by him. In this way, he scatters all the allurements that becloud us and prevent us from aspiring as we ought to heavenly glory. May he teaches us to travel as pilgrims in this world that our celestial heritage may not pass, or perish or pass away. The Holy Spirit trains us to renounce, trains us to deny, to repudiate, to disown our ungodliness, our anti-godness, and also to renounce our worldly passions, those things that this world, uh, in this world that we have, that are usually given as a good gift of God, that we make into ultimate passions. Things like Food, nature, work, sex, relationships, things that aren't evil in themselves, but we make evil as we turn them into gods and idols that we uh, long to serve. Paul says that the Spirit is training us to deny these things as ultimate, training us through the knowledge of the gospel to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. And he does this by giving us a more glorious picture of all that we have in Christ, which makes the allurements that becloud us, as Calvin so eloquently says, fade into the light of Christ's glory and grace. And so we deny ourselves and alongside this we take up our cross, which leads to our second point of taking up our cross. What's interesting about this passage, uh, and only stood out to me during my prep, is that Jesus is telling these, his disciples to take up their cross before Jesus himself has gone to the cross. When Jesus says this to them, their minds would not have pictured Jesus on the cross. Their imaginations would have gone to all that the cross represents. Uh, this Roman death device, which wasn't used to just kill criminals, but was used to torture and humiliate these criminals and rebels. It was the way of Roman rule showing that it had absolute power and control, that it was such a dominant force that it wouldn't just kill you for your rebellion, but it had the power to parade you through the streets holding the crossbeam of your own device of death, upon which you were going to be tortured slowly for days. It was an expert killing device, but more than that, it was a weapon of humiliation. It proved once and for all to criminals, rebels, and anybody else watching that Rome was the power, and all were under that power. And so when Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross and to follow him, 
He's saying to them, put to death your self-kingship and come and live under Christ's kingship. To be Christ's disciple means to die to our self-allegiance, to give all our allegiance to Jesus as our Lord and our King. And this plays out in a few areas of our life. Um, Firstly, the Apostle Paul helps us understand this quite clearly in uh, Philippians 3, 1 to 10, like Ruthie read, where he lists all of his qualifications, everything that he brought to the table that these religious leaders of Jesus' day thought were gaining them entrance into God's kingdom. They thought they were impressive to God. And then Paul says, after listing all of these qualifications, are better than the, the rest, mind you. What does he say then? He says that he counts all of that as useless. Let's um, read some of this passage again. Philippians chapter 3, verse uh, 7 through to 11. He says, But whatever gain I had, for whatever gain he had from what he thought he brought to the table with all of his qualifications and all of his law abiding and keeping his self-appointed righteousness, his allegiance to himself as the guy who could figure this all out, have it all known and live in it correctly, uh, whatever gain he might have had from that, he counted as, uh, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. This is not a text that we are often overly fond of. And I think we've actually so casualized this concept of cross-bearing that we really struggle to hear these words for what they mean. We've turned the command into a common phrase to express any discomfort, like, my in-laws are coming this week, it's my cross to bear. (laughs) Or this knee injury I carry is my cross to bear. Or we use it more comedically, saying, like, I've got to work on the beach at the Sunshine Coast this week, it's my cross to bear. Now, all of this is not a warning that we need to clamp down our, on our colloquial usage, but it helps us see that Jesus and Paul are not talking about minor things. This life of denying ourselves and taking up our cross, it's an all of life laying down the kingship of ourselves and being governed and ruled exclusively by King Jesus. Secondly, if you read through this whole portion of Matthew, you will notice uh, more the upside-downness of the message. He's been, Jesus has been arguing with the religious leaders of that day, showing them how their understanding of righteousness, based on their own keeping of an external law, is no righteousness. That true righteousness is complete devotion uh, and love of God. It's every single one of us, besides Jesus, we get this wrong. We're all unable to love 
and obey God as he commands. And a great example of this can be found in the previous chapter in Matthew Matthew 15. Uh, The religious leaders come to Jesus and they question him regarding how he and his disciples don't follow the hand-washing rituals, which was the tradition in those days, a tradition so tightly held that it was effectively considered law. But see how Jesus shows the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. His response to them in Matthew 15, 17 to 20 is this. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Pause there. You know something good is going to come when Jesus has to give an anatomy lesson that makes little boys giggle. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, Jesus is saying, deny and die to any concept of our own righteousness. What you think you bring to the table that might make God accept you because our hearts are so corrupt that even our good works are not good enough. They come from a wrong motive. They are still me-centred and for my glory. This great example where these Pharisees, these religious leaders, the guys who were meant to know it all and are meant to have all this sorted in their lives had added this law and were trying to hold people accountable to do you all wash your hands before you eat and if not, then you're not really loving and obeying God. They're putting the premise of our obedience and in Christness on the visual observation of do these people go about washing their hands? We could appropriate that question to pretty much anything. Are you really a Christian if you don't come to church every single Sunday of every single year? Are you really a Christian if you don't read your Bible five times every single day of every single year? Are you really a Christian if we don't catch you praying, if we don't see you in the right spaces with the right people, doing the right things at the right time? It's those sorts of questions which Jesus comes in and just tears apart completely and says, none of those things are any, in any way, shape or form uh, able to question our Christianity. The only means of identifying our faith are in what's happening on the inside and how that is then transforming what comes out. And so how do we do this whole thing? How do we deny ourselves? How do we take up our cross and follow him? Firstly, a quick note on what I would call a tangible approach to denial and delight. A bit later in Philippians 3, uh, Paul calls out those who are now enemies of the cross of Christ, those who have turned from salvation in Jesus and are now finding their salvation in pursuing their own pleasures. I was meant to put salvation in quotation marks there because that salvation is not a real salvation. In verse 19 of uh, Philippians 3, he says that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. For many of us, these earthly things, the allure of earthly pleasures like food, drink, sex, money, success are difficult for us to part with. 
we might profess that we trust Christ and maybe we truly believe that we trust Christ, but we're ultimately like finding our rest in Jesus. We're pursuing our rest in gratifying our flesh, giving in to every temptation and impulse for the sake of feeling better about ourselves or like we have some form of control in this life. Maybe a more tangible means of helping you to find ultimate rest in Christ is to intentionally, wisely, and with the support of brothers and sisters in Christ, remove ourselves from those temptations for the sake of our hearts being more and more captivated by the work of Christ. This might look like fasting certain foods or screens or social media This might look like saying no to going to clubs or pubs with people uh, to avoid your disposition to substance abuse. This might look like installing accountability software on your devices. That as Paul says in verse 11, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul is not suggesting by that statement that uh, it's by his effort in this regard that he can attain resurrection, but he is showing that it is only by trusting in Christ's righteousness that we have any means of salvation. And so by the power of the Spirit, we flee those idols, those uh, other gods that we worship. We put those desires to death by the Spirit who keeps pointing us to the ever greater treasure of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Maybe these worldly vices don't trap you like it traps many of us. I think the obvious trap set for you then would be pride. Like those religious leaders in Jesus' day who were convinced that they had it all together, that they had it all figured out. And while your belly or your passions might not be your God, your idol is actually your intellect or your assumption of the truth which leads you to trusting ultimately in yourself and yet again not in Christ's righteousness. I think most often when we are caught in this, this trap of pride in ourselves, God's love for us overflows Uh, through the means of his discipline toward us. We're told in the letter to the Hebrews that our heavenly father disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This may come about in a myriad of ways, but we can trust that God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines us for our good, that we may grow in trusting Christ's righteousness, not our own. Which leads to our third and final point, follow me. Again, when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself and take up his cross and follow me, the most crucial point of this entire statement is the word me. It's Jesus. The hinge is not us denying The hinge is not us cross-bearing and the hinge is not even our capacity to follow. But it's Jesus, it's his completed work that we look to. As John Calvin says, again, to help us understand, he says, Oh, how much has that man profited who, having been taught that he is not his own, has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason that he may yield it to God. 
For as consulting our self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. We could replace those resplendent words of Calvin, the sole haven of salvation, simply with the word delight. Our sole delight is most truly found in following the leading of the Lord alone. We deny our own righteousness. We deny our own fleshly pursuits of worldly pleasures, but this denying ourselves must be filled with something. We are created for delight, and in Christ, in His cross-bearing, we find the only true source of our delight in the light of His glory and grace by turning our eyes, turning our hearts upon his finished work. Seeing Christ taking upon himself all of our sin, shame and guilt of crucifying it upon the cross in our place and seeing the risen Christ, the glorious image of God given for our salvation, this is where our true and ultimate delight is found. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't yet trust in Jesus. Firstly, I'm so glad you're here because we want you to hear this message. That firstly, your good works will never be good enough to get you in. We needed someone else to perfectly obey the Father and Jesus did that for us. Because our sin and rebellion against God, we deserve death. But Jesus took that right penalty upon himself and died in our place. And we are told in the Bible that all those who realize their need for Jesus can call upon him, can come to him, can lay themselves down and be taken up into Jesus Christ in union with him that we might live for Christ by living in Christ. Myself and a lot of others here this morning would love to talk with you more about that and pray with you about that and try and help you through this journey of coming to know all that Jesus Christ did on your behalf. And Christian, brothers, sisters, is your delight in the finished work of Christ? Is your heart captivated by that beautiful reality, that glorious truth that even while we were Christ's enemies, Jesus died for us. If this isn't how you would describe your relationship with Jesus, please hear these words very carefully. You cannot try harder. You can simply only come closer. Now, if we're out camping in a cold field, how do we warm ourselves? It's futile to try harder to rub our arms or jog on the spot. Uh, the only way to be warmed to delight is to move closer to the open fire. To stretch out your hands and receive the warmth it so effortlessly puts out. It's to be that water skier, to mix the metaphors, clinging to all that Christ is, the leading of his Holy Spirit and having all those things of the world which at first seemed to gleam and shine with promise actually fade in comparison to all that Jesus is. As the band comes up this morning, 
In in finishing, I want us to see this contrast alive in God's word as it is. Uh, In another of his letters, the the Apostle Paul shows the striking contrast between a life lived in our own flesh, one that trusts our own righteousness or relishes in the allurements of our own fleshly desires and the life lived in the spirit, one that has eyes for Christ and delights in him. This morning, I simply want to finish by reading these words from the Apostle Paul. And I pray that as we sing this next song, our hearts will be captivated once again by the glory and grace of Jesus on our behalf, that we can deny ourselves. We can deny allegiance to our own righteousness, allegiance to our own thinking we've got this together, allegiance to our own passions and desires, uh, and we can take up our cross. We can come completely under the kingship of our uh, good Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and we can continue on that beautiful journey of following him. This morning, I'm going to finish simply by reading Galatians chapter 5, from verse 16 through to 26. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.